Chuck Swindoll shared the following story. He said, in the northeastern United States, codfish are not only delectable, they're a big commercial business. Anybody enjoy eating cod? Especially, well, not here in this area, apparently. But he, he said there's a market uh, for eastern cod all over, especially in the sections far removed from the northeast coastline. But the public demand posed a problem to those who were shipping Uh, The codfish, at first they would catch them and then they would freeze them and then they shipped them. But freezing them took away from the flavor of the cod. So they experimented with shipping them alive. And so they caught them and they put them in tanks of seawater. But that proved even worse. Uh, When they arrived, it was not only more expensive, but by the time they got there, the cod had lost its flavor and it becomes soft and mushy. The texture also was seriously affected by shipping them in just seawater tanks. Well, finally, some creative soul uh, solved the problem in a very innovative manner. The codfish were placed in a tank of water along with its natural enemy, the catfish. And from the time that the cod left the East Coast and it arrived in its westernmost destination... Those ornery catfish chased those cod all over those tanks. 
And guess what? When it arrived at its destination, when it arrived at market, they were as fresh as when they were first caught. There was no loss of flavor, nor was the texture affected. If anything, it was better than before. In other words, by the time it got to where it was going to be, it was better than when they first caught it. Well, beloved, did you know that God sometimes puts catfish in our tanks as well? Swindoll continued by saying, maybe you live with one of them, the catfish. (laughs) Or it's someone whose irritating presence drives you at work uh, to your knees several times a week. He wrote, every church has a few catfish as well. They're there to keep all the cod from getting soft, mushy and tasteless. Well, it sounds like from the chuckles today that you know what he's talking about. And maybe there's some catfish that are swimming in your tank as well. And the obvious question, I think, is this. Why does God allow these people into our lives in the first place? Why does he allow difficult people, irritating people, frustrating people, people that drive you crazy, people that drive you to tears? People that just make you want to cry. Maybe sometimes you do cry. Why does God allow them into your life in the first place? Well, let me just suggest one possible reason that he allows those types of people into our lives. It's because as Christians, he's not done with us. As Christians, he's not done with us. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, you know, when you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, all of your sin was forgiven past, present, and future. That's a good place to say amen right there if you're a child of God. All of your sin is forgiven past, present, and future. You were adopted into the family of God. You were washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were baptized and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You were made a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. You were made a citizen of heaven. And you were given true purpose, true joy, and true satisfaction. Positionally, in Christ, you are perfect. In Christ, we're perfect. We're a saint of God, a child of the King, a believer, a citizen of heaven. But when you look down today, we realize real quick, don't we, that we still reside in the flesh. When we look around today, we realize that we still reside in a sin-cursed, fallen world. And when we're honest, we have to say, yes, we still struggle with sin from time to time in our life. And though we're saved completely and totally and destined for heaven, a child of the King, a child of God, though we're saved, we're not always completely subdued. We're kind of like our man Jacob. You know, we're studying Jacob's life right now in the book of Genesis. And Jacob was saved, but not subdued. John Phillips said Jacob had been saved. He says it's one thing, however, for a person to be saved. It's another thing for him to be subdued. The subduing process would take up the next 20 years of Jacob's life. How slow we are to learn even the basic elementary truths. Of the life of faith. God enrolled Jacob in school when he made him his child. And by the way, he enrolls all of us in the same school. You say, well, what school is that preacher? Well, it's God's school of discipline and maturity. 
God's school of discipline and maturity. Now, I don't think Jacob knew he'd be enrolled in this school, but he was a pupil nonetheless. And by the way, you may have finished school 50 years ago and say, well, praise the Lord, I'm done with that. Well, really, you haven't graduated from school. All of God's children are enrolled in God's school of discipline and maturity. You say, well, why? Well, because his goal is to make each one of us like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've got to be honest with you today. As you look at God's school of discipline and maturity, and as we study Jacob's life, we're going to find out that some of the lessons in God's school are harder and more difficult than the most advanced calculus or trigonometry class you ever took. But don't doubt the goodness of the headmaster. Our headmaster wants us to succeed. He wants us to graduate with flying colors. And don't think that God's school is all drudgery and no joy. Because sometimes you think about school, all you think about is drudgery and and monotony and torture. I'm talking about the staff even. Uh, But I'm talking about God's school today. And it's not all drudgery. No, there's joy. There are going to be burdens, but all the blessings that are going to come. Let me share a couple passages to kind of get going today. We're going to be in Genesis 29, but let me share with you a couple passages talking about God's work in us, talking about God enrolling us in his school. Let me share, first of all, Romans 8, 29 through 31. I'm going to read these two from the, the, the New Living Translation because it's just a way of, of maybe hearing it afresh and anew. Look at it. It's on the screen. You can jot the reference down. For God knew his people in advance. And he chose them to become like his son. That's his ultimate goal. We become like Jesus. So that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Now, beloved, let's be honest about it. Perhaps you came in today and you didn't realize that as a Christian, you were enrolled in this school. You knew you were saved. Let me just stop for a moment. I'm talking to believers now. Maybe you're here today and you're not saved. Let me invite you to Christ today. Repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. His ultimate goal is good things for you. What? To make you like his son, The Lord Jesus Christ come to Christ today. But those of us who know Christ, you knew you were saved. You knew you were headed to heaven and you thought that was it. But friend, he's still working on you and he's going to continue working on you. And this should be so encouraging to us. We should be so grateful. They say, wait a minute. No, I thought it was the school of discipline and maturity. You want me to get excited about that? Be excited about over the discipline of God? I mean, the blessings. Yes. Heaven, yes. Glory, yes. But God's discipline? Be encouraged about that? Be thankful for that? Well, let me show you another passage. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he what? What's it say? He loves 
and he punishes each one. He what? Accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you how? As his own children. Think about that. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? I think I've met a few, but who ever heard of that, it says. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children. Now watch this next part. If he doesn't discipline you, it means that you're illegitimate. And not really his children at all. Hmm. See why you should be grateful when God disciplines you? Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. And by the way, dads, that was an encouraging verse to me. Doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us. We mess up as humans. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. How many of you grew up and you got whoopings? How many of you said, oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> Glory. You're showing your love for me. I'm really your child. You, you mean this for my good? No, it wasn't enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, notice what happens. There will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Beloved, when God is disciplining us, we should be encouraged. Because it shows that he loves us, he accepts us, and he's working in us to make us like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to see that in Jacob's life today. In Genesis 29, I'd ask you to go there. Genesis 29, as we pick up the story of Jacob. Last time we left Jacob, he was at Bethel, the house of God. And while at Bethel, God had reconfirmed to him the Abrahamic covenant. God had reconfirmed to him that he was going to give him the land, the people, and the blessing. And uh, he met with God there. Remember, he had that dream and he saw that stairway or that ladder, or that ramp to heaven. And he saw angels ascending and descending upon it. He renames Luz, the, the house of God, Bethel. And he leaves Bethel. He's on his way to Haran. Uh, there's 450 miles left on his 500 mile journey. And perhaps after meeting God and getting all these promises and committing himself to God, that he's going to make God his God and he's going to serve God and give to God. Perhaps he thought all of his troubles were behind him because now God had met with him. And yes, Esau's still mad at him and his father's probably still hurt and his mother misses him. But this is a new day in his life. And he starts out again on his way to Haran. And in Genesis chapter 29, verse 1, we find that quite a bit of time and 450 miles are captured in the very first verse. It simply says in Genesis 29, 1, so Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Now, this brings us to where Jacob meets his match. 
I've called today's message, Jacob Meets His Match, because he meets his match in two ways. Number one, he finds a match in a wife. Actually, we're going to find that he finds his match in two wives. And secondly, he finds his match when it comes to deceit and trickery and being a schemer. When he meets his uncle Laban. Now, Jacob is going to spend 20 years in this place we're reading about here today. We know that from Genesis 31, verse uh, 38. This part of God's school lasted 20 years. He's going to enroll him in school, and this section takes 20 years. And from this account, we're going to learn a couple of lessons. The number one lesson we're going to learn starting out from this passage is this. And this is going to be an exciting lesson to learn, and it's going to be one you're going to be happy about. But we learn right away from studying this passage that in God's school, we're going to have some thrilling times. In God's school, we're going to have some thrilling times. These are the things that we like. This is kind of like lunch and snack and recess all rolled into one. Were they your favorite subjects too? Lunch and snack and recess. Now, let's see some of these thrilling times that he has as he arrives in Haran, 500 miles behind him. Look at verse 2 of Genesis 29. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well, they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now, all the flocks would be gathered there and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep and put stone back in its place in the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, my brethren, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. Then he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. So he said to them, is he well? Literally in the Hebrew, Shalom. And they said, Shalom, he is well. And look, his daughter, Rachel, is coming with the sheep. Now, remember, don't forget, he's not only fleeing from Esau's anger. His brother Esau wants to kill him. He was sent to Haran to do what? To find a wife. And he sent to his uncle Laban. And here he arrives at this well. He meets people who knew his uncle Laban. And even while they're talking, uncle Laban's daughter walks up with their sheep. Talk about coincidence. No, you know better. Talk about providence. God has been with him. God has guided his steps. God's put him in the right place at the right time with the right people. And can I just say to you, beloved, there is nothing like seeing God's hand evident in your life. It's a thrilling thing to know he's put you at the very right place at the very right time with the right people. To unmistakably see his hand guiding your life. Think about your own personal life. Look back on it for a moment. If you change just a few pieces of the puzzle of your life, your life would be totally, absolutely different. So I understand that Danielle thought about not coming to the college where I was. She was looking at going to another college. I'm glad she didn't. That one move forever changing my life, her life. I could have turned down a fellow by the name of Hank Kroll. Hank Kroll asked me if I would go out and fill in for him. He couldn't be here at a church way out in the country called Red Hill Baptist Church. I could have said no. 
Some wish I had, but I I said yes. (laughs) If I'd said no, forever. You see, just one decision, one answer. You look back over your life and you realize God is guiding my steps. God is in charge of my life. And it's a thrilling thing. And how thrilling it must have been for Jacob. The supplanter had now met God. He knew God. He arrives 500 miles from home. No doubt lonely, tired. He arrives at the very spot. And he arrives at a place where there are shepherds. And they know his uncle Laban. And then Rachel herself walks up. Now, I don't want to read too much into this passage, but I believe it appears that it was love at first sight. As he looks out and he sees this lovely lady named Rachel. Some actually think he was trying to get rid of the other shepherds so he could talk to Rachel without interruptions. Look at verse seven. Then he said to the shepherds, look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Watch, water the sheep and go and feed them. <laughs> and maybe he's trying to get rid of them. Uh, but like your little kid brother, they weren't going anywhere. He was stuck with them. And Rachel walks up, verse 8. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And they rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. And so he's stuck with these shepherds. And here she Here she comes, Miss Shepherdess. And I mean, she walks up with this flock of sheep. And I believe it was love at first sight for Jacob. Look at verses 9 through 11. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, And the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. That's very interesting, by the way. He saw her and her sheep. That Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. So he saw her and her sheep. Very interesting. And it says that he personally rolled the stone away and watered the sheep. Perhaps he was showing off his physique and his muscles as he rolled the stone away for her, maybe flexing as he did. And then it says that he greeted her. By the way, this is not an improper thing. It was a cultural greeting. He kissed her and he weeps. Why does he weep? Because he hurt himself moving the stone. No, I'm not. (laughs) We can get pretty dumb showing off, by the way. I won't tell you what I did, but anyway, it was painful. I don't think it's because he hurt himself. I think it's because he's overwhelmed with God's goodness and guidance in his life. I think perhaps, and again, I'm not going to try to read too much in, but I think perhaps he may have felt in his heart that this was indeed the girl that was the girl. This is going to be his wife. Perhaps he wept as he was thinking about this because he thought about his own mom and dad. Do you remember the story of his own mom and dad and how they came together? You remember his dad, Isaac, and uh, his mom, Rebecca. Well, you know, his granddaddy's name was what? Abraham. You remember Abraham sent his servant uh, to find a bride for his son, Isaac. If you remember the story, the servant goes and he travels and he gets to a well and he prays to the Lord. And after he's done praying, you remember what happened? Rebecca walks up. And she offers to water the camels 
And she becomes ultimately the bride of Isaac. It's a beautiful story. Don't do it now, but go back this uh, this next week and read in Genesis 24 about that lovely, beautiful story about a bride for Isaac and how God guided their steps. And it happened at a well. And now we have the same locality, another situation where he meets Rachel at a well. And this is a thrilling time in God's school. I mean, beloved, this is better than lunch and recess. This is as good as summer break to meet the girl. Notice Rachel's response. Verse 12. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebecca's son. So she ran and told her father. Now, Rebecca's father, excuse me, Rachel's father. There's a lot of names. I'm going to get them mixed up today. Uh, Rachel's father, his name was Laban. And you can mark it down in your notes. Jacob is about to meet his catfish. In fact, his catfish would be his father-in-law. Now, I know that there are a lot of mother-in-law jokes in our world. But I wonder if maybe Jacob had some father-in-law jokes that he liked to tell. Verse 13 and 14. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are a bone. Uh, you are my bone and my flesh. You're my relative. You, you truly are my family. And he stayed with him for a month. And beloved, that one month is going to turn into 20 years. You remember when Rebecca sent her son um, Jacob away, go for a few days and spend the night at my brother's house. Well, that few days turned out to be 20 years. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. It's obvious we're not going to finish this um, passage today because we're going to cover uh, uh, the first 30 verses. So I think we'll have to make this a two part. You'll come back next week, I hope, and hear the second part, won't you? But don't put a bookmark in yet. Because we need to draw some application here. Um, on this part of God's schooling. Now, please come back because you need the second part of the message to, to get a, a better picture of God's schooling. But um, how do we respond to these thrilling times in our life in God's school of discipline and um, maturity? What should be our response? When we look at Jacob's life, it's a thrilling time. It's a happy occasion. It reminds us that we, too, have those sorts of Occasions in our lives. I think there are three responses that we as Christians should give and have to God's work in our life when it's these thrilling times. I I think, number one, uh, we should respond to these thrilling times by being grateful. We should be grateful. When you realize that God holds your life in his hand, he guides you and provides for you. He gives us all good things that we do not deserve, yet He graces us anyway. How can we help but to be grateful? Look back over your life this morning as God has guided your steps. And you see those significant milestones, those divine appointments, those meetings that forever changed your life. You really had no control over them. You didn't have control over where you were born or who your parents were. But God placed you at the right place at the right time with the right people. And God graced you and continues to do so. And when you look at these thrilling times that God brings into our life, how can we help but to be grateful? 
You say, well, preacher, I'm tired of you talking about being grateful. I'm sorry. We need to be more grateful. I don't think we could ever be grateful enough. And I think it's a fitting thing. And I think it's part of what was welling up within Jacob as he kisses her and he weeps. He's grateful. But the second thing in these times in our lives, we need to be mindful. We need to recognize that God is guiding us. We need to stop talking about coincidence and happenstance and luck and spend more time talking about providence and sovereignty and blessing. That's looking at your life from a Christian point of view, from a biblical point of view. These things don't just happen. I'm not just lucky. No, God is guiding my life and I'm blessed. And He deserves all the praise. He deserves all the glory. And He deserves gratitude on my behalf. And I think that's welling up in his, his heart as he's weeping, as he's embracing uh, Rachel here. It's a combination of this gratefulness and this mindfulness. He sees God's work in his life. But there's a third response I think is fitting. Not only being grateful and being mindful, but also being joyful. Being joyful. I believe that God really does want us. To enjoy these thrilling times in our lives. You say, have you got a verse for that? Yes, I do. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age, so right now, not to be haughty. We could add that to the list too, right? Be humble, but not to be haughty. Nor to trust in uncertain riches. But in the living God, listen to the last part of the verse. Who gives us richly all things to what? Do you remember the verse? To enjoy. To enjoy. In this instance, dating and courtship. Done in a God-honoring way. Done in a pure way. Should be fun. It should be thrilling. It should be enjoyable. Marriage. Kids. Home life. Hobbies. Even work. Should be done joyfully for Jesus. Can I just say something that maybe you need to hear today? It's okay to enjoy God's blessings. It's okay to enjoy God's blessings. The Bible says he gives us richly all things to enjoy. And it seems like these three responses could be an unending circle. Being grateful because we're being mindful of God's work, which leads us to being joyful, which leads us back to being grateful, which leads us to being mindful. And it's an unending cycle as we recognize God's hand in our lives. In God's school, we're going to have some thrilling times. Thrilling times. And we should enjoy them because ultimately we enjoy him and his goodness. Now, I said this is the first lesson. You've got to come back next week. But I was challenged this week. So I thought about enjoying God's blessings. I was challenged by a lady by the name of Nadine Stair. Nadine Stair, an 85-year-old woman from Louisville, Kentucky, she was asked this question. How would you have lived your life differently If you had the chance, how would you live your life differently if you had the chance? And so 85 year old Nadine Stairs, she provided these poetic words as her response. She said, if I had my life to live over again, I'd dare to make more mistakes next time. I'd relax. I'd limber up. 
I'd be sillier than I've been this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I would take more chances. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. I would perhaps have more actual troubles, but fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who was sensible and sane hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments. If I had to do it over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I try to have nothing else, just moments, one after another, instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those persons who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a raincoat and parachute. If I could do it again, I would travel lighter than I have. If I had to live my life over, I would start barefoot earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. I would go to more dances. I would ride more merry-go-rounds. I would pick more daisies. Well, beloved, we can't go back and live our life over again. But we can choose to begin living today, right now, where we are, recognizing God's hand in our life. And therefore, we can live with gratefulness and mindfulness and joyfulness because God is in control of our lives and these thrilling times that he brings from his good and gracious hand. Father, I thank you today for the way that you worked in Jacob's life and, Lord, the way you work in ours. And I pray today that you'd work in the heart and life of each one here. If anyone here does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't know what true joy really is. I pray your Holy Spirit to bring them during this invitation hymn and allow someone to sit and take a Bible and lead them to the cross. And then, Father, I don't know what you're saying to your children today. I don't know why you had me preach this particular message. I don't know why you led me to say these words that I've said today. But I believe you're in charge of these moments. And I believe this was not by luck or chance or just happened to be here. You directed my steps and our steps together today. And so whatever it is that you're speaking to your children about today, I pray that they would respond in faith and obedience. And Lord, respond joyfully. And as you discipline us, as you correct us, as you lead us, help us to never forget that you have our best in mind. You really do love us. You really do accept us. You really do want us to be more like your son, the Lord Jesus. So, Father, you take charge of this invitation. You have your will done. And I'll give you all the honor and all the glory. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn today is 502. And I chose it before I finished the message. And I thought, well, maybe I should change it. But when I looked at the words today, I thought, no, they sure do fit. Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me.
My prayer for you this week is that God would open your eyes and my eyes. That we would literally see his hand guiding our very steps. The altar is open today. If you need to be saved, you come. Christian, you want to come and just pray. God's dealing about something. You come. 502, let's stand and sing, open my eyes that I may see.